This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Welcome in, Clay Travis, wins and losses. For those of you who have not listened before, we've done a lot of these. I think over 40 now, and the idea is these are long-form conversations, not a lot of commercial breaks, but that will be just as good if you listen to them today as if you listen to them in five or ten years. And we're exploring the idea of the wins and losses that exist over the course of someone's career. It can be in sports, business, media, can even be a big story in general. Um, just a really fun conversation allowing you to be a little bit more in-depth than you might be able to on television or certainly in a quicker radio interview. And our guest today is a guy that I have been watching since I was a very young man. Alexi Lawless, one of the most famous American soccer players of all time, recently returned from 2022 uh, World Cup. I guess technically it was the 2021 World Cup. Oh, 2022. All the years run together uh, out in Qatar, uh, which I believe is the way you're supposed to pronounce it. Alexi, have you recovered from being on the road for that long in Qatar in the Middle East for the most recent World Cup? Well, I can keep my years straight. What is going on with you? Are you okay, my man? Holy cow. I'm getting to be an old man. Like I know we just moved into a new year, but they all run together. Well, look, I know we live in interesting times, and it's been a hell of a, let's say, last three years or something like that. But, yeah, so uh, 2022, in uh, November and December, we were in Qatar, and, yes, we decided to call it Qatar. And uh, uh, a wonderful success from a Fox perspective and a broadcast perspective, but also from a soccer perspective, one of the great World Cups, especially when it comes to the final. And, look, you you followed sports. Finals can often be uh, real letdowns, and this was anything but. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people that believe that that final – 
with France and uh, Argentina, and ultimately Messi holding up that trophy was uh, the greatest final in World Cup history. So all in all, well, it went well on and off the field, and I'm back, and I am safe and sound. And I, can't, I, w- I couldn't be more happy to talk to you. I'm really excited. Yeah, I, I think there's a strong argument to be made that that is the greatest soccer game potentially of all time. And I think certainly when you consider the number of people who watched, probably the most watched soccer game of all time, which is a good combo as well. And so you, let's start for wins and losses. We start early. So you, uh, you obviously came to prominence in the nineties as soccer started to take off in the United States. But I'm curious when you were a kid growing up, were you a soccer exclusive uh, player? Did you play other sports? When did you start to realize, hey, I'm pretty good at soccer and maybe focus on it? I'm just curious how you came to become uh, such a, uh, a lightning rod in many ways for American soccer. Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. I grew up in the 70s and 80s and, uh, you know, MTV and Bubble Yum and Little Caesars and all that kind of stuff. And I grew up in Michigan, uh, and I know your wife's from Michigan. It, it is the law there, if she hasn't told you, that you also have to play hockey no matter what you do. <laughs> yes. I am I am from a generation that played multiple sports. I, you know, I'm not grump, grumpy old manning it because the world has changed. Obviously, sports have changed with specialization. But, yeah, from a young age, I was playing all different types of sports. I actually played more hockey growing up than I did soccer. But eventually I just gravitated to it. I, I loved the international aspect of it. I loved um, the creativity and the way that you were given autonomy in a way that other sports don't have it where – you know, let's be honest. When you're watching a soccer game, once that whistle blows, the coaches have very little to do with ultimately what happens. And you can't say that for a lot of sports. And so I loved that that responsibility. And like I said, the autonomy, being able to do whatever I wanted once that whistle blew. Did you get uh, – do you think you could have been an NHL uh, professional hockey player if you had gone all in on hockey? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I played at a very high level. Uh, I was freaking awesome. Uh, <laughs> I loved it. But, you know, I grew up, I grew up uh, you know, skating on ponds uh, and flooding the, uh, you know, the, the driveway and doing all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I was huge. I'm a huge Red Wings fan, always have been. Um, so hockey was a huge part of my life. And, you know, the, the hockey culture in Michigan is, is something to behold. And so it's obviously very, very different than what soccer was. And uh, I love many, many parts of it. But like I said, I also, you know, my father's from Greece. He, he was a professor. My mom's a, a writer. And he, oh, he, this is what happens when you, you get a, a kid who comes over from university to the States, a Greek kid, and marries a girl from Jersey. And so this is what you get. Um, but, you know, soccer was there. And, we, you know, I grew up also going back and forth between Detroit and Athens, Greece. And so I also got that that sandlot type of existence that we associate so much with baseball and other sports, but in Athens, where I was the kid, I was the redheaded American kid, I would go down to the corner to the sandlot and just kind of sit on the side until eventually a kid didn't show up in goal and say, let's throw the American in goal. And then I worked my way up, learned some swear words in Greek, and then they let me play on the field. And, you know, that, that type of existence and that type of uh, a background uh, and childhood within sports uh, really, really helped. Whether it was playing hockey or whether it was playing soccer, and I definitely think that playing other sports, and in particular playing hockey, really helped my soccer. Did it toughen you up, the, the, the fact that you play? I mean, it's interesting. I didn't know the, the hockey background, but you played a very physical style of soccer. Do you mm-hmm. think that that was partly connected to having grown up playing hockey, which obviously is super physical? 
Sure. Uh, you know, absolutely. The, the movements in hockey, obviously the, the ruggedness and the physicality that is involved in hockey, I, I definitely use that in the soccer that I was playing, you know, with the understanding that there are, there are rules and things that you can and cannot do. But I, I looked at my, my physical attributes as something that could help me in different ways. And, uh, you know, the, you know, hockey players, uh, you know, they are a, a very different breed in terms of the way that they think about the sport, the way that they think about themselves, I guess, even the way that they think about the world. I also, there's plenty of hockey players that you will see actually warming up playing soccer. And obviously the international connections is probably the most closely associated with soccer of the sports out there with the international aspect uh, that, uh, that started a while ago, but really is dominant right now when it comes to the NHL and that sport. I mean, it is a very, very international league and it's a very, very international game. Were you a defender in uh, in soccer and in hockey, or did you play all positions? Like, at what point did you become a defender in uh, in soccer, kind of specializing, or was that something that uh, that was a late thing? Or was it something that fit your personality? How did that end up happening? So, so I played on the wing from a hockey perspective, uh, out there on the left wing, and I was right-handed, so I was on the off wing, so I could cut in and do that kind of stuff. And I, even from a soccer uh, when I was playing soccer, I, I was a much more of attacking player. And what happened is I went to uh, Rutgers University, State University of uh, New Jersey over there, exit nine off the turnpike, uh, because it was the only place that I could get into. And the coach said, listen, we're going through a rebuilding type of year here. Have you ever played defense? And I completely lied to him and said, oh, yeah, I played lots of defense, but I would do anything to actually get on the field. And the rest is history, as they say, from a defensive perspective in soccer. But it was, it was an opportunity that I saw. And, you know, the reason why I, I ended up at Rutgers University, like I said, I was getting rejected at all these places. I was coming from Michigan. My dad was desperate, and he called up the coach and said, hey, listen, I got this kid. He's 6'4". He's done some things in, in soccer. He's an okay student. And the coach said, well, let me see. We drove the 16 hours out to uh, New Jersey. We met with him for a couple hours. He said, I can invite you to preseason. I can get you into the agriculture school. And I was like, sign me up. Not a problem. We drove 16 hours back. I packed. And then he came back, and my dad basically slowed the car down enough to kick my ass out at exit nine over there in New Brunswick and New Jersey. And, uh, you know, I, I fell into a, a really, really interesting and very, very different environment scholastically and uh, athletically than I had ever been exposed to. You're a smart guy. Could you not get into Michigan or Michigan State, or they didn't have athletic programs uh, that focused on soccer? How did you end up at Rutgers? You said that was the place you could get into. Uh, what was the story there? I just got rejected at a lot of places <laughs> and Michigan didn't have at that point, Michigan didn't have a varsity soccer program, if you can believe it. This was the late eighties. And um, so, you know, I was desperate and you know, you're my, I have a 17 year old daughter right now who's going through the, uh, the college process and it is complete. Well, you, you got a few years before that clay, but it, it is, it is completely different than back, certainly back in the eighties when I, when I was doing it. And so I just needed somebody to say, yes, it didn't really matter where and from a soccer perspective though you know the new jersey area and the, and the new york metropolitan area is a huge hotbed and so what ended up happening was i was surrounded by much better quality and the strength of schedule that we played put me on a national footing and platform so from a soccer perspective it was everything that i hadn't had and really kind of set me up to have success later on what was soccer like in Michigan? You, you, you grew up outside of Detroit, for people who don't know the geography there. That's where yep. my wife is from, Oakland County. Uh, we actually got married in Birmingham at the Community House for people who have been to Birmingham, Michigan. It's a fantastic place. 
But were you primarily, like now soccer is a very travel culture, right? There's a lot of travel teams. It's very competitive yep. to get on that team or that team uh, or this team. Was that the case in Michigan at the time, or were you primarily playing high school, middle school? Like, what was the process by which soccer evolution occurred then in the 1980s in Michigan? So I had been exposed to it, like I said, uh, when we were going back and forth uh, to Athens, Greece. Greece. Yeah. Greece. But then, you know, I did everything from a very young age that a lot of the kids still do today. I did mom and dad coaching and orange peels and juice boxes at halftime. And then even back then, there were some travel leagues. And yes, I played on a travel team. And so we started to get at a, at a higher level. But I'd be lying to you if I, if I looked at or played soccer with an eye to the future. It was just something that I did. My parents, like I said, they, they did not have an athletic background. And as long as it kept me out of trouble and it was something that I was good at, they were cool with it. And as long as I kept up my studies to the extent that I, uh, that I could. So, yeah, it, just, it was something that just fit from a young age. But it was Wild West back then compared to what the kids have now. And I know I sound old saying that, but it warms the cockles of my redheaded American heart to, to see what this generation has at its disposal. I, I don't begrudge them at all. I think it's wonderful. It makes me incredibly proud that they don't have even close to you know the problems and like I said that wild west type of existence that was soccer back then even from a young age in terms of youth soccer to high school soccer to college soccer I did play uh, high school soccer which even that in and of itself is a talking point when it comes to sports nowadays as to how many kids are specializing and you know playing club soccer and, and playing a, a travel team and not even being allowed to play high school soccer but I benefited uh, immensely from playing high school soccer and I'm not just talking about as a soccer player, but as a student and as a person. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. 
But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I remember a story, uh, and we're talking to Alexi Lawless, this is Wins and Losses, I remember a story about Barry Larkin, uh, who was one of my favorite baseball players growing up. He went to the University of Michigan undergrad, uh, and I believe it's—I believe it's been publicly out there for a while. But Bo Schimbeckler, who was mm-hmm. then the coach of Michigan, had a lot of success. Would show up at Barry Larkin's baseball games and call him a wuss because he wouldn't come play uh, football. Because Barry Larkin was an elite athlete, I think his son later played NBA. I mean, they got some good genes there. You said you played hockey, and then you made the switch over to a soccer. You're a big guy, 6'3", 6'4", so maybe it helped. But did you get trash-talked at all for being more interested in soccer than, uh, than, uh, than, than playing hockey in Michigan at the time? And I want to read this to you as part of that, because I said I was going to do it earlier on the Clay and Buck show. Uh, I was reading the Babylon Bee, and I thought this was funny, and I bet you even would laugh a little bit. Uh, in a NHL player says if he wanted to support the gays, he'd be playing soccer. Uh, again, that was that was the NHL getting, uh, you know, they had that controversy over whether the guy would wear the yep. LGBT uh, uh, story, Provorov or not. But did you get picked on at all in the 80s for being like, yeah, hockey's kind of this macho sport. I love it. You say you were good at it. Could have been a potentially NHL player. And yet you got drawn to soccer. Did you have any of that Barry Larkin syndrome where guys would be like, why are you being a wuss and choosing soccer? Yeah, I mean, look, I lived through the age where it was starting to transition into a much more, for lack of a better word, <laughs> acceptable type of sport for, uh, you know, for, for young athletes. Because when we were kids, Alexi, and you're a little bit oh, older yeah. than me, but not that much, Soccer was considered a wuss sport for kids to play, right? I played high school soccer and if in Tennessee, if you compare that to say playing high school football, like I would have been considered a wuss for being a soccer guy and that yep. was even more prominent I would imagine when you were playing uh and started to make that transition into becoming a professional soccer player. Yeah, and so what it made what it, what was good is that when you got your ass kicked by a soccer player like myself it was really embarrassing if you were shooting your mouth off uh, but I, you know i heard it all i heard like you said it's for wusses it's for it's for girls it's uh it's not for guys it's communist uh, a bunch of guys running around in tight shorts and nobody ever scores and there's no physical nature to it and it's not you know all it's you know it, it all of those different things i absolutely heard i i laughed at them i ignored them you know, my size certainly certainly helped out, and you know, as as you know, as you can attest to, sometimes 
from afar, you can have a perception of what it is. And then when you actually see it played or play it yourself, it, yep. it can change that perception. But look, when I, when I look at, at this generation now that grows up, they look at soccer as anything else in terms of their, their palette uh, that they have of sports, whether it's to play or whether it's to watch. So the perception of soccer has dramatically changed in the U.S., I think, you know, I think for the better. Uh, but, you know, it's still, it's still not king and, uh, in, in terms of history and in terms of popularity, but it's, it's a whole different ball game and it's a whole different sport than it certainly was when I was growing up. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and I think that's interesting because uh, for people out there, depending on the age and as they listen to us, um, the, the analogy I would make is when I was a kid, and obviously I was a huge sports fan, the only international athletes I knew were tennis players, right? I knew Boris Becker. I knew Ivan Lindell, Stefan Edberg. Like we could run through all that era of great tennis players. Um, and you saw the Americans compete against them. Nowadays, I would say tennis by and large is not anywhere near as much talked about as it would have been in America when I was a kid growing up. But when I take my kids to elementary school and when I go pick them up, Alexi, I am stunned by the amount of international soccer jerseys I see American second, third, fourth grade kids in the Nashville area where I live. They all, because of the FIFA video game, have favorite players. They all have an opinion on Messi versus Ronaldo, right? In the same way that Jordan LeBron is discussed, there's a lot of debate about who the greatest soccer player is of all time. It's amazing to me in a generation how that has changed so significantly. I bet even to you, if you go back to when you started playing soccer, that's kind of staggering how much knowledge there is internationally about the game now embedded in our society. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. And you hit, hit a, bunch of, a bunch of things, including, like you said, the FIFA video game. I mean, that was a game changer in terms of the education of players, of teams, of leagues, of tactics. And everybody was playing it. And therefore, everybody, whether they realized it or not, was gaining an appreciation and an education uh, for what it for what it is. The other part is, I mean, th- when you when you when you want to watch soccer in the United States, there are people that I have friends uh, I have friends that are over in Europe that are jealous of the amount of soccer that we have at our disposal that they are able to watch on a continual basis. I'm, I can pull up any game from anywhere in the world, and so you have a generation now. When I was growing up, we were literally trading VCR, VCH, uh, VHS tapes. Yeah, uh, from, you know, that were bootlegged from uh, games and programs from over in Europe in order to get it. Or we were going to the local soccer store to pick up what was the Bible for us American soccer people, which is a, a magazine called Soccer America. And that's where we got our information. And so it, it, is, it is completely changed. And like you said, this generation right now doesn't see soccer any differently than other sports uh, out there, either in terms of their fandom uh, or in terms of playing it. Okay, you mentioned being a redheaded kid in Greece, uh, sitting on the sideline watching all those kids play. Um, And and I want to kind of go back to that time and and build on it a little bit. So your family, your dad, I think you said, was was Greek and raises you here. What are the chances you play soccer if your dad is not Greek? If you don't have that that interaction and that experience in your life of being over there in Europe – in Greece, sitting on the sideline, watching those kids play in the dirt. How much do you think that impacted your decision to embrace soccer as the sport that you would pursue at the highest level? 
I definitely think it impacted me, but I, I, it was it was a function of being a kid. Obviously, the culture over there in Greece is rooted in soccer, and it was a function of being lonely and trying to make friends. And this was the avenue that you used over there. And I so yep. So yes, yes, absolutely, that happened. But I, I'm also still from a time where the advent of of youth soccer and AYSO and all these different leagues and the realization from a lot of, let's be honest, a lot of parents and a lot of schools and a lot of communities that this was a way to get people active that didn't cost as much as other sports. You didn't have to be big to play it. And so I think that really lent itself to what, you know, to what was going on uh, in a consistent basis and why, I gravitated to it. But yeah, I mean, if my father wasn't Greek, I still think that I would have been involved in soccer and been exposed to soccer. But having that, you know, that organic type of experience from a very young age, absolutely that that impacted me. I'm curious what you would say about this. I, I've, I've argued this for a while, and you obviously would be an expert on this. So I think a lot of people will enjoy it. Basketball. When mm-hmm. it used to be a huge insult, to say to someone, oh, he plays like a Euro. If you're a basketball (laughs) fan and you listen to me, you'll remember it. It used to be an insult. Oh, he's a big man, but he doesn't want to bang inside. He wants to step outside and take threes. Then what ended up happening was the European style of basketball conquered in America because America, we were teaching basketball like, hey, it's football, right? Like you're a defensive end. You do this. You're a quarterback. You have this role. And what became uh, the way that basketball was taught was soccer-like in that you played a one-to-five, right, a point guard to a center, but you had to be able to handle the ball and you had to be able to play every single position. And it's a much more beautiful style of basketball and much less regimented. And I think Americans have come to embrace, actually, the way that Euros play basketball but the European style of basketball is just an outgrowth of the way that Euros played soccer. Do you see that connection? Would you buy into that thesis in terms of the evolution of the sport? Yeah. I mean, the way that, and even just in terms of my, my lifetime, the way the game is played, I'm talking about soccer uh, right now, is fundamentally different than anything that I grew up playing. You know, to your point about, um, you know, basketball. If you the the interesting thing the irony is that it was almost a return to what basketball once was. If you ever watched Hoosiers or something like that, you know the emphasis on passing the ball, the emphasis on being able to shoot the ball that we kind of went away with, and understandably so because dunking and showtime and all that kind of stuff. That's what people wanted to see. But the problem was that no matter what, no matter what is successful, somebody will come up with something that is able to take it down. And I think very, very quickly from a basketball perspective, they said, oh, fine, this guy can't dunk or this guy doesn't do the showtime stuff, but he'll step back, even though he's a big man, and be able to drain threes, and that is points on the board, and that can change a game, and that can keep jobs, and that can win championships. And so that becomes valuable. In the game today, from a soccer perspective right now, possession of the ball and the ability for individuals to keep that ball is huge. And that comes down to 
individual technique that has started at a very, very young age. Certainly, Europe has a, a long history of recognizing that it's all fine and well to be, you know, a huge star and to score a bunch of goals and stuff like that. But the fundamentals, and that applies to any sport, the fundamentals in life are essential, and they will always be essential. They are evergreen. Regardless of what style you're going to play, if you don't have the fundamentals, you're already lost because you have that, you know, that base that is not there. So this leads into the, the other part I was going to get you to break down. The number, I'm sure you see it all the time. The number one criticism that I see of soccer in the United States every four years as it cycles up and everybody's paying a lot of attention that sports mm-hmm. fans make is they say, oh, the reason the United States doesn't dominate is because our best athletes don't play soccer. My argument is you're missing the boat. And I'm curious how you would analyze this. Our athletes who play now soccer for the U.S. are wildly talented. But if you just looked at raw athleticism, it isn't what is the focus here in soccer because what they do so well with all these academies in Europe and everything else is they find kids who are 10, 11, 12 years old. They put them into those academies and they have had hundreds of thousands of touches and technique experience and talent that most American players do not get in our country and what's fascinating about it to me is we have this idea of Europe as like socialist and not very uh, capitalistic necessarily which isn't always true right but they are incredibly incredibly competitive and you know will get their best talent and develop it in a way that doesn't necessarily happen in the United States. So it's not raw athleticism that the United States is missing. It's the amount of technique and talent and repetitions that the Euros and other places have gotten their best talent through. How would you assess that? That I'm sure you hear that conversation all the time. Sure. Oh, if we put LeBron and if we put you know whoever the best athletes are in the world into our soccer academies in the U.S., we would win championships – I don't buy that necessarily. I think it's about the repetition. Yeah, I mean, so first off, just from a pure numbers perspective, I know how much you love data. Uh, yep. If you were to put, if you, if you put everybody that played a sport and, and just had them playing soccer, the chances are, or you had your bets that you would have more uh, better players out there and certainly more competition because more players would be playing uh, against each other. That's, that's undou- uh, undoubted. Uh, when it comes to someone like LeBron James, for example, how, old's, or how, how tall is LeBron James? Six eight. Okay, so he's six eight. There are no six eight players that are dominating soccer. So just know that when we say our best athletes, you have to qualify that with an understanding and an agreement about what an athlete actually is. If I if if you didn't know who Leo Messi was and you saw him walking down the streets there in Nashville, you would yep. have no idea that there goes arguably the greatest soccer player ever to play the game because that's way he just looks like a guy that's walking down to his, I don't know, his insurance agency. Or Messi is 5'8", like eight, right? Is he 5'8", yeah. basically, for people yeah. out there who may not know his size and stature? You exactly. would never know that Messi was the greatest soccer player in the world, whereas if you see LeBron James, he's 6'8", he stands out, right? Shaq ain't hiding anywhere. So uh, soccer players, like hockey players, I always say, Alexi, I'm sure you'll appreciate this, like I used to see all the Nashville Predators out back in the day, uh, the the hockey team. A lot of them weren't very well known uh, because hockey wasn't the biggest sport in Nashville. 
And so they'd be having beers, hanging out at the bar. And every now and then I would see a guy who didn't know who they were and like bump into him. And, you know, th- I would be like, oh, my God, this guy is about to get <laughs> utterly wrecked because he had no idea he had just bumped into a hockey player who fought sometimes for a living because they're relatively average sized dudes. Right. And they don't look yep. like that much different than the regular guy would have in the bar. Yep. And, and also, you know, when you're talking about the development of, of American soccer players, there, there is a stunting that happens and it's, and it started to dissipate over the years because there are developmental academies and obviously the, uh, the professional game has increased and there are much, many more pathways and opportunities out there, but there comes a point where players say either, I don't want to play anymore because I don't see any future. And when we say future, usually it is tied to, you know, the next level or going pro or making a lot of money or, you know, dating somebody, whatever it ends up being. But, you know, that's still aspirational, even though we recognize that even in all sports, it's a very minute uh, amount of people that are actually able to do that. But not having that for so many decades, that was detrimental to the sport. And it started to change now because they can see opportunities. Even if it's just stars in their eyes, that is an incredible driving force. But I will say this, as we continue to grow, I think there's a real kind of moral question that we have to answer, and that is, what is our responsibility to these young athletes that we are specializing, that we are at times having them bypass school for? What is our responsibility? Because we focus so much on that 90 minutes, the soccer game is 90 minutes, that sometimes we forget about the other 22 and a half hours. And I I would submit to you that we're not just creating better, in this case, we're talking about soccer, better soccer players, but we're hopefully we're creating better young men and women that are going to lead what I feel is the greatest country in the world. And abdicating that responsibility, that would that would pain me and that would hurt me. And I think ultimately you would be letting yourself down, you'd be letting your country down, you'd be letting the players down and these these people down, and you'll be letting the sport down. That leads in, Alexi, well, I think that's really well said because I argue with my kids all the time, and I think this is true for anybody out there who's a dad, grandpa, or if you're a kid out there listening to this uh, discussion right now, you got to make sure you use the ball that the ball doesn't use you, right? And and that's a big part of anybody, no matter what sport you're pursuing, no matter what your talent level might be. And it brings me back to you going to Rutgers. Was that a, for you, when you went there for college, was that a culture shock to you? I know you traveled back and forth to Europe some, but you're going from Michigan, now you're suddenly at Rutgers, basically kind of in the outskirts of the New York City you know, environment, that could be a culture shock. Was it for you, or did you immediately thrive when you got to college, not only in athletics, but in the classroom? So, you know, I grew up, uh, like I said, in the suburbs of Detroit, and I went to a small prep school there, and I suddenly find myself in the, you know, the state school of New Jersey, 30,000 uh, kids, uh, like you said, right outside of New York, and I'm thrown into this, you know, this this very, very different environment. I, I will tell you that what I did, and maybe this is just a, a coping mechanism, is I didn't speak to anybody for about the first month that I was on campus. Uh, and I scared the crap out of a lot of people off the field. But on the field, it actually worked out okay because I was playing with a bunch of kids from New York and New Jersey. And basically, they looked at Michigan as it might have been the, uh, for them as the other side of the moon. So I was as alien and foreign as you could possibly be coming from Michigan and that I wasn't saying a word. It just scared the crap out of them. And that actually benefited me in terms of establishing a, uh, a starting position. But, 
you know, it was just, it was, I mean, New Jersey in and of itself is, is a trip and, and takes a little getting used to, but I consider myself an adopted New Jersey now. And, uh, you know, I had a wonderful time. And like I said, it changed everything for me in terms of the soccer and, you know, the, the education and the different people that I was meeting. Uh, it was, it was good. I'm, it, it was a little bit daunting and scary uh, to begin with, but you know, you adapt and kids adapt and you know, it's either sink or swim. And like, you know, I'm not a great swimmer, but I figured it out eventually. Okay. So the world cup is in the United States in 1994. I was playing soccer in high school at the time that it was here. It was a big story, but I feel like it kind of snuck up on people a little bit, Right. When did you start to think in your head, hey, maybe I could be on this U.S. team? Was there a lot of conversation about 94? We're talking right now about uh, this in 2023. I got the year right this time. It's not very far till 26, which there will be the World Cup basically in the United States. I know it'll also be in Canada and in Mexico, but there's a tremendous amount of talk about it and has been for many years. Was that the case going into 94? Uh, I don't recall. I was young. Mm -hmm. What kind of conversations were there about soccer then? When did the U.S. even have the 94 World Cup uh, awarded? I I don't know the backstory there. Yeah, so, I mean, look, Clay, the reason I'm talking to you today uh, on this show is because of the 1994 World Cup. And for those that don't remember or weren't around, uh, it was the first time that the U.S. ever hosted uh, the World Cup. And it was significant because the U.S., like we've been talking about, you know, it was not. And maybe you even argue today it's not necessarily, it's certainly not relative to other countries and cultures, a soccer country. And so this was taking it to a different land and obviously taking it to a different uh, market. Uh, the soccer scene, even back in 1994, was very, very different. And uh, this was an opportunity that I think everybody recognized to kind of plant a flag. And I still, to this day, meet people that were watching or at games in the 1994 World Cup that said, that tell me that's when everything changed for me. That's when I fell in love with the game or that's when I knew that this game had a future if you were already in love with the game. And I'll, I'll just tell you this story to give you, you know, some perspective. A couple of weeks before the World Cup in 1994, I got on an airplane with the, the rest of my World Cup team. We were getting ready for the World Cup. I sat in my middle seat as we, as we traveled back then, back in economy. I sat down next to a, a, an older woman. We struck up a conversation. Uh, she said, what do you do? I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, well, what's your job? I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, <laughs> well, what, do you, what do you do for money? And I said, well, I play soccer. And two weeks later, I'm in front of a billion people playing in the World Cup. And that's just to give you an idea of you know, the mindset and the landscape back then. Now it is, you know, as the saying goes, you've come a long way, baby. And we have on and off the field. But that was a seminal moment, as was the 1999 Women's World Cup. We remember Brandy Chastain and how that yep. was important for the women's game and for the game in general. And that's why in 2026, when the World Cup is coming back to the U.S., uh, it's just huge because it's coming back to a country and a culture that is a soccer country. We are a soccer country. We don't need to apologize for anything. As a matter of fact, we need to lean into it. We're going to do it in an American way, and that's a good thing. That's not anything to be embarrassed about. 
And in 2026, I'm telling you right now, Clay, it's going to be bigger than anything has ever uh, that anybody has ever seen on the field and off the field. It's going to make more money for FIFA and everybody that's involved than's ever been made. And I think it's going to be a real moment and yet another seminal moment. And I'll be really, really proud when I'll be 56 years old and it's coming back to our shores. Okay, so I want to ask a couple of questions about that. 1994, you would have made what in terms of rough income off the field, on the field? What is a start, What is a soccer player on the U.S. men's team making in 1994? Like, what would the range have been? Oh, I was probably making a couple thousand dollars a month, and they paid for uh, a, uh, an apartment. Uh, and, you know, we trained actually two years uh, leading up to the World Cup to be ready for the World Cup. But what it did do was give me a platform. And I went from there and then went over to Europe and played in Italy, which at the time was the, you know, the biggest and most expensive league in the world. And obviously my, uh, you know, my salary was raised significantly uh, then, but that's the type, you know, I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. And it changed my life forever. I milked it for all it was worth, both on and off the field. I remember, I remember some of it. I burned it at both ends for many, many years because of that. But, you know, I, I knew that this was the moment, that this was our moment, this was my moment, and like I said, you, you need to be able to recognize that opportunity and grab it with both hands, don't let anybody take it away from you, and use it and milk it for all it's worth. So you would have been making, prior to the World Cup, less than 50k a year to play soccer, that's probably fair, and almost everybody on the U.S. men's team would have similarly been making that, that kind of – to kind of put it into context for people out there, um, you know, compared to Christian Pulisic, who might be making $20 million a year now. I, I don't know what his exact salary is, probably not far off from $20 million a year uh, with all his endorsements and everything else. Christian Pulisic is, you know, by himself making, like, scores of magnitude more, which is an interesting marker in the growth of the game itself – than the entire U.S. men's soccer team would have been making, for instance, in 1994? Yeah, we weren't making a lot of money. And there were some players that were already playing in Europe that obviously were playing, uh, that were getting, getting more money. But for those of us, you know, like myself, and if you remember Kobe Jones and Tony Miola and these types of, uh, these types of players. Now, keep in mind, the United States men's national team had actually played in the 1990 World Cup. I was a fan. I, I was bumming around Europe with a couple of my high school buddies, getting drunk and going to uh, the World Cup games, painting my face, never imagining that four years later I would be representing my country uh, in the World Cup. That's how quickly things changed for me on the field and obviously off the field with what was going on. But the money didn't come later, and the, and the money only came because of the World Cup. And to your point, you know, I had to star in a World Cup to be given the opportunity to go and play in Europe and go and make a living at one of the great leagues in the world over in Italy. There are players today that are growing up that don't even play a single game in Major League Soccer and already have people from Europe scouting them, bringing them over, paying them a lot of money. And again, I, I don't say that. I, I say that as a form of respect and progress and incredible uh, pride that's going on right now. But that all these pathways exist now, that uh, MLS exists right now, that NWSL for the women exists, all of those things came out and started in 1994. What was it like to make the team? How did you make the team in 1994, and how would it compare, say, to today's tryouts and U.S. men's team uh, process? I, I have no idea, but I imagine it's quite a bit different. 
So I can tell you exactly where I was. So we trained down in, uh, well, you know a lot about the coast out here. So a little further down from the coast, I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm in Manhattan Beach. But way, you know, further down the coast, there's a place called Laguna Beach. You might have heard of it. So we used to train down in Mission Viejo, California. That's where our training center was. And it was basically this what would nowadays would be like a reality show survivor type of thing where they just kept for two years prior to the world cup, they just kept bringing people in and you would start out at the holiday Inn on uh, off the, off the five off of La Paz road there. And they would give you a room, a tryout for the week and some meal vouchers. And if you made it, you continued on to the next week. And if you can do not enough weeks, they might sign you and give you a month to month type of contract. So at the end of this two year trial and reality show, you were just hoping that ultimately you were named to the, the to the list of 22 players. We were in the parking lot, and the final cuts were going to be made. Um, I, I, I vividly remember, no news is good news. And so if they don't want to talk to you, get in your car, because we were at the beach, and we had just gone for a beach run as a team. And you had to get in your car and go home. And if they didn't want to talk to you, that was good. I remember seeing players in that parking lot get cut and not realize their dream of going to a World Cup. Now, you know as well as I do, you've, had, you've dealt with uh, professional players. We can be incredibly ruthless and we can compartmentalize. It doesn't mean we don't have sympathy or empathy, but the reality is all I cared about in that moment was myself. My roommate was one of the last cuts. How about going back to that apartment and having to, <laughs> having to deal with that? But you know what? All I cared about was being on that team because that was where the opportunity was. That was How many guys got cut? Was roughly in the parking lot would it have been 10 20 like how many how no, many guys many. were on the beat no three or four because we have been going through the years and so you yeah. might not even make it through a week they might say listen it's great but you are getting moved on and so it was just the you know next person up and people came through some really really good players came through and it's you know it's like a tryout in anything so it, it's 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 down to you know, a subjective type of assessment uh, from a, a human being. And the coach said, I like this guy. I don't like this guy. And eventually either you were left standing at the end of it all or you weren't. You're out in Manhattan Beach. You just mentioned a great place yeah. if you haven't been out to the L.A. area. Um, an, another friend of ours, Matt Liner, lives in Manhattan Beach. Um, and he's gotten to be a good friend of mine. And I'm fascinated by the fact that Liner came through being a kid celebrity, basically, right? 19 or 20-year-old superstar kid who played for USC. And he's a totally normal dude now, right? Like, you would enjoy hanging out, chatting with him. Everybody who's listening to us right now, I think, would like having a beer with him. He's great. I think he's you're great. The I've s- hung out with him many times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think you're the same way. But I'm curious for you. You mentioned the World Cup. You basically became super famous overnight, right? Mm -hmm. You had been grinding away, trying to make the team, as you just said, make it through the parking lot there, uh, make the team. What was it like? There's this great story, I'm sure you've heard it, where all of the Friends cast go out to dinner in Las Vegas, and the producer or creator of that series is like, this is the last time that you will all be able to eat together as normal (laughs) humans for the rest of your life because that show comes on, Overnight, they instantaneously, all six of them, become massive superstars. Did you have a moment like that in your life where you're like, nobody knows who I am, and then the World Cup starts, and suddenly it's like everybody on the planet knows who you are? And if so, what was that like? Oh, wow. So if I ever write a book, I I probably, you know, the preface will be uh, setting a scene of uh, after the last game that we played as the U.S. in that 94 World Cup, 
We lost to Brazil, who eventually went on to win the World Cup. And there was an after party. And I'll never forget, in the middle of the night, sitting at a bar, and on one side of me, uh, you know, is Lars Ulrich, uh, you know, uh, from, uh, from Metallica, and just doing shots of tequila and Jägermeister with, uh, with the guys from, uh, from Metallica and looking around going, what the hell is going on? You know, this is back when they were drinking and this was a long time ago and everything. But, you know, I, again, my life com- fundamentally changed overnight because of the power of the World Cup. Now, I also looked a certain way and I cultivated an, an image. You know, nowadays the kids call it brands, but, you know, I, I was thinking about my brand well before, you know, I grew up, you know, I've, I've done a lot of music and I grew up, you know, watching the MTV generation and everything like that. So I knew that, you know, I've always considered myself a performer uh, and an entertainer. And that's not a pejorative. Actually, you know, you you uh, you train for what for your yep. sport. Right. Which is the same thing as rehearsing. You go on a field, which is the same thing as a stage. You're in front of an audience, which is the same thing as a crowd. You wear a, uh, a uniform, which is the same thing as a costume. And I've always believed that performing and performance is a huge part of athletics. And I love that. I gravitated to that. And so the way that I looked, you know, it resonated. And, you know, people knew who I was. And I had a lot of, you know, huge red hair and a big red goatee and all that kind of stuff. And it was very comfortable for me. But it was, you know, it was by design. And it was something that, uh, you know, I cultivated over over that time and continued and used to my advantage both on and off the field. But yeah, it was, it was nuts and it was wonderful. And I, I, you know, they were wonderful times. I've since, you know, grown and and gone into different things. And obviously I wish I could still grow that hair, but that's, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but man, oh man, Clay, it was, it was a wonderful time to, to be alive and to go through that craziness. It's hard to, you know, equate it with anything. But, you know, I, like I said, I, I didn't find it problematic in any way, shape, or form. As yeah, well, the fact, thing that I, I find so interesting, the thing that I find so interesting about it is most people become famous over time, right? So you can adjust to the way that your life might change. There are relatively few people who become instantly very very famous and to your point you're six foot four you've got a big red goatee uh you're very flamboyant and noticeable uh you know on the field but also you're big enough you were talking about Messi earlier when you're five foot eight you don't really get noticed six foot four guys in general kind of get noticed right and so what would you tell yourself because we talk wins and losses I'm sure there's some things you did and you're like that was the dumbest thing I could have ever done you had to learn it what do you wish you could have told yourself, if anything, right before that World Cup that you were going to learn over that ensuing seven, six, eight years as you became more and more of a prominent public figure? I mean, I, I think that I had a pretty good head on my shoulders. I mean, I made mistakes on and off the field just like everybody else. And I have regrets, uh, not, not a lot of them, but I certainly do. I mean, look, Clay, let's be honest. If the worst thing in your life if somebody wants to take a picture with you or tell you how great you played or, uh, you know, get an autograph, then you live a charmed life. And if you're an asshole, all right, that can't deal with that, then I, I, I can't relate to you, okay? And I'm not saying that, that we don't have bad days or, or, or that I probably at some point wasn't, uh, you know, as accommodating as I, as I should have been. But I've always tried to remind myself, even, even when that happened and in that moment, I'm not the smartest guy, but at least in that moment, I was smart enough to know that if, if, this, is, if this is your life changing, okay, and this is 
10, 15, 30 seconds that this person is going to spend with you. And it might not be fair, but that's what they're going to judge you on for the rest of your life. I want to make it good. I want to make it positive, you know, and it's not that I have to go around chasing people to make sure that they love me. But again, it's just a small little picture and moment in their life. And I want to make sure that that happens. And so I would just reiterate and remind myself from a young age, never, ever lose that. And I like to say that, uh, that I haven't, but I went on and I, you know, I did things on and off the field that, you know, didn't work out or, you know, that I failed or that I would consider a, you know, a loss uh, and made mistakes going forward. I try to limit them. I tell my kids all the time, I, you know, I don't, I don't mind that you make mistakes. I just don't want you to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so far, so good. Was there anybody you met during that time? You mentioned doing shots with Metallica, which, which is pretty awesome. Was there anybody you <laughs> met and you were like, I can't believe that you know who I am? Um, let's see. Uh, I remember sitting outside of um, about to do Letterman and Bill Murray came up and sat down and said, Hey, you know, he started to toot the shit about it. And I was like, this has got to be filmed. This has got to be, you know, they don't have candid camera anymore, but yeah, that was, that was a little weird. Uh, even, you know, when I was talking about, you know, the, the shots from Metallica, there was, there were celebrities all over the place. Robin Williams came in. Um, it always weird. Uh, it, you know, for, for those that don't know, the 94 world cup was the result of a lot of, lobbying and, uh, you know, just a lot of effort on a lot of people's parts, including Henry Kissinger. And so before we played our first game, which, by the way, was in the, the Silverdome, rest in peace, in Pontiac, Michigan, oh, yeah. uh, 10 minutes away from where I grew up, indoors in that dome there, Henry Kissinger came around and shook our hand in the locker room before we went out there. And I, I just was like, wow, this is this is amazing. You know, and I'm a, you know, I'm a I love a lover of American history and history. And this, you know, this was this iconic person who meant so much to the world and obviously to our country, but, and also from a soccer perspective, what he meant. So that was, you know, that was mind blowing type of stuff. And it, and it just never stopped. It never ceases to amaze me how many people that you wouldn't think are into the game are into it and the knowledge that they have and they come up and, you know, I'm just as starstruck as anyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's leesa.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. 
Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're talking to Alexi Lawless. This is Wins and Losses. I am Clay Travis. I appreciate everybody out there listening. Um, Alexi, when you look, you step off the field in 1994. You guys mm-hmm. have just lost to Brazil, who goes on, as you said, to win the World Cup that year. If I could have immediately transported you now all the way up to 2023, has soccer evolved and grown in a way that you would have thought that it would have over, you know, that's almost 30 years now, as we get ready for 2026, what do you think would have surprised you about where we are sitting here right now in 2023? What do you think might have disappointed you? How would you analyze that path in terms of the impact of soccer in the United States and what you guys playing in 94 did to help seed the area and the ground, basically, that we're standing on today? Yeah, I I don't think that I would recognize my country relative to soccer. And uh, in, in that's, a, that's a, in a good way. I, I think I would be blown away. Uh, and I can tell you in 1994, while we had ambition and aspirations, for things to change and for evolution and growth and explosion, I don't think any of us at that point envisioned what we look like in 2023 right now. And look, I, I know we kick ourselves for what we aren't, both on and off the soccer field. Uh, but the reality is we also have to take a step back and pat ourselves on the back for how far we have come. It is night and day, Clay, what the, what the game looks like now. And we're America, so we want it all. And we want to win everything. And we want to be the best. And I get that. That's what makes us great. And that's ultimately what has made us gain so much in such a relatively short period of time. If you look at, for example, you know, Major League Soccer, okay, and what they have done over the last 30 years, it's unprecedented. If you look at soccer in the United States, just in terms of the growth, unprecedented when you put it up against other leagues, other sports, other countries. Now, there's still plenty to do. And so 
You know, I, you know, you look at the infrastructure, the soccer stadiums that have come online, the billionaires that are invested in the game, the men's and the women's game, the players that we that we are producing, the broadcast that we uh, that we do, all of those different things. It makes me feel incredibly proud and incredibly excited for the future because if you extrapolate it out and say, all right, this is what we've done in the last thirty years, who knows where we could be in the next thirty years? Which leads to a question. You kind of hinted at it. The women have won World Cups. A lot of people mm-hmm. look around and say the next step, obviously, is to advance to the you know the semifinals, right, where the U.S. has not been in the modern era. Do yeah. you think that the United States in your lifetime or in the lifetime of people who are listening to this interview right now will win a World Cup? Well, if, you're, if they're really old listening to it, there could be some problems. But I do think in my <laughs> lifetime. In your lifetime. Yeah, Let's it, presume yeah, you've got yeah, 40 years left. Yes, uh, absolutely. And thank you for giving me 40 years. I love it. I will take it right now. Sign on the dotted line. Yeah. Listen, um, yeah, I think I, I absolutely believe. Okay. So everything is impossible until somebody actually does it. Yep. And I, you know, when we do, when we do World Cups, people ask me this question all the time. Can we win it? Can we win it? Yeah, absolutely. You can win it. It's, it's seven games. You don't even have to win all seven, all seven games. It doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're Brazil or the United States. You need a bit, little bit of luck. You need the soccer gods smiling on, on you to a certain extent at different times. And things can happen. 2026 is huge, obviously, hosting it. I think that that will have an incredible draw and power for this What US should team. the goal – sorry to cut you off, but what should yeah, the no, goal no, no, in no, 2026 yeah. be? Oh, to win the World Cup. That's the goal? Absolutely, yeah. And you think the U.S. in 2026 would be good enough to be able to win the World Cup? Because you, you, everything's probability, right? And you're, you're, you're talking about that in the larger context. Everybody out there who's a sports fan understands that, you know, it's hard to win the Super Bowl. It's hard to win the NCAA yeah. tournament. There's lots of people trying to do it. We know we'll be there in 2026. Uh, and, right. and so the goal is to win the World Cup. If I told you the U.S. will advance to the round of eight, We'll get obviously out of the group. We'll win one match. Would you sign on to the round of eight right now? Uh, listen, we went to the quarterfinals in 2002 when we were handball away from going to the semifinals. So getting yep. to the upper echelons of a World Cup can happen. I know some people when I say that the, that the goal should be to win the World Cup in 2026, or when I said it in, you know, in 2022, you know, they say, oh, that's being you know, disingenuous or you're being delusional. No, that's not, that's not the case at all. I just, I believe, and, not, and, and again, this isn't blind faith. This is a belief that anything can happen, even impossible things can happen. And am I, am I taking all of my money right now and going to Vegas and putting it all on the U.S. in terms of smart money? No, but things can happen, and it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Hell, we're America. We've seen our hockey team do something that said, that people said this is impossible to do. So any, absolutely anything can happen, and I don't think that it's ridiculous to think that the men's team in 2026, given what they are now, what they will be in 2026, can't find a way to do things that we haven't done before, and yes, to challenge for a World Cup. Would you take the round of eight if I gave it to you right now? You said you'd take 40 years uh, to lifespan, sign on for it right now. Would you sign on to the round of eight? Yeah, but I'm greedy. So, yeah, I'll take it, but, you know, I want, I want quarterfinals at the very least. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, Christian Pulisic. Uh, let me, let me, so there's a lot of scandals now around the U.S. soccer team, 
And on some level, I kind of take that as a sign of how much more people care because I bet if you went back in time in 1994, I bet there were 20 scandals that never went public that you're like, boy, I'm glad there wasn't, you know, social media. I'm glad that we didn't have everybody on Twitter. You know, I'm glad. And and that's the case, by the way, for anybody that was on any team on basically any level for much of the 90s, the 80s, into the early 2000s. I always think it's funny. You talk to athletes. They're like, man, y'all spent a lot of time talking about this scandal, but you didn't even hear about the four bigger scandals that never went public, right? Anybody who's on a pro athletic team right now uh, is nodding along because a small measure of the actual controversy ever goes public. When you see the controversies that are out there, like the geo controversy that is out there, Does it make you think, okay, this is a sign of the growth of America as a soccer country and we just have to get used to these interpersonal dynamic conflicts? Or does it make you think, hey, maybe the U.S. soccer culture in some way is more toxic than other countries? How would you assess it as someone who has been all over the world playing soccer? All right, so we're not more toxic than other soccer countries. uh, And we don't have, you know, more nepotism or old boy network or people working in the industry, uh, you know, type of situation than any other countries. Everybody's got that. Okay. Um, you know, for, for those that are, that, you know, maybe, maybe don't know over the last couple of weeks, we've had this, you know, this huge controversy and, uh, uh, you know, and this, uh, this crisis, if you will, with, uh, with Gio Reyna, one of our, our young players and his fa- father and mother come to find out, uh, we're, you know, basically calling up and inappropriately calling up, uh, members and ultimately friends that are in charge, whether it's Greg Berhalter, our head coach, or Ernie Stewart, who's the, uh, the head of the federation, relative to their son not playing. And really, when you when you look at it and read it, you know, basically blackmailing him with yep. a story from 31 years ago where he kicked his wife when they were both uh, in college, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, there was there was you know seven months apart, and they went to therapy and all this kind of stuff, and then they worked it out, and they are married now. Uh, for 25 years, and they have four kids. And this story came out. I, it was an unnecessary, self-inflicted wound. That's what, the way that I look at it. And from a soccer perspective, can we withstand it? Yeah. But it's not, you know, why? So initially, I was incredibly sad for everybody involved because people didn't deserve this. Uh, Greg Berhalter's wife, Rosalind, didn't deserve this, and Greg Berhalter didn't deserve this. Then I got, then I got angry because, I, again, Look, you can make a bunch of different arguments as to whether to continue on with Greg Berhalter as the coach. And for those that don't know, Greg Berhalter was the coach this past World Cup. He might have done well if you, if you think so. He might not have done well. But you can make an argument that he shouldn't continue on. But in no way, shape, or form should part of that argument be this story that was put out there in order to hurt him. And you can't put it back. That genie is out. You're not putting it back. And so that's where the anger in me uh, came about. We'll get through this. You know, this too shall pass. But in American soccer, as is the case probably in a lot of sports and a lot of industries out there, you know, we eat our own. And it's disappointing. It's sad. It's angering. But again, this is kind of stuff that you have to go through. And to your point, you know, a lot of sports deal with this on a consistent basis. How do you balance critique in the world of soccer where you know everybody and sometimes Mm -hmm. you've known people for generations? You might know their parents uh, with also simultaneously those personal relationships and then have a job that requires you to comment on 
their performance in a public way. And the reason I bring it up, I'll give you a good example. Uh, we had Charles Barkley on, and he's no mm-hmm. longer friends with Michael Jordan. They used to be best friends. But he has to comment on Michael Jordan's role as a uh, GM or as an owner. And Jordan got super upset about that. Uh, and Barkley said, ultimately, that's painful to him, but the job requires that he be honest. I'm sure that's happened sometimes in your life where somebody has said, you got a great private relationship with them, but they have a public job. How do you balance that in terms of what you do? Yeah, I mean, well, that, to me, that, that says that Michael Jordan's soft, okay? I never yeah. thought I'd say that, but, but I mean, that's, that's soft because he is, Charles Barkley is doing his job. I, I'm sure, you know, the same, you know, you've probably experienced this too. I have had um, girlfriends, boyfriends, uh, wives, uh, husbands, mothers, fathers, grandparents, friends, uh, acquaintances, coaches, Every single you know, one of these people at a certain point has come up to me, either to my face, uh, through text, uh, over a telephone, or behind my back. doesn't matter. But at, at some point, I have had those conversations. The best ones actually are where it's face-to-face and it's human-to-human. Because you, need, you just need to let them get it out. And oftentimes, that's all they want to do. I've had one, I, I remember once I said something about a player. And his father cornered me in the bar after the game and started screaming and yelling and going off. By the end of the night, we were having drinks at the bar, okay? Yeah. So, and that's wonderful. But I, like Charles, I have to do my job. And I have to say things that at times can be critical. I like to think that I do it in a fair way. And I like to think that I do it in a balanced way in terms of also making sure that it's not all negative. But if I see something that I disagree with or deserves criticism, I'm not doing my job. I'm not earning my money or I might not get another job if I don't do it. And that's what I want to watch out of, uh, you know, an analyst when it comes to sports. That's what it does. The, the job and the role demands. And I got no problem. And, you know, there's people now, even uh, in my life that I, you know, grew up playing with, that I was, that I was friends with that, you know, they might act differently around, but the best ones are the ones that recognize, Hey, he is doing his job. And while it may be painful in that moment to have to, to have to hear that, I would rather he do that than pull punches because then he's not doing his job. Not everybody's like that. And some people take offense and maybe some relationships are damaged and maybe even some uh, relationships are completely severed, but I'm okay with that because I'd rather, I'd rather do this job the way the job needs to be done. What's it like to be on the road for the length of time in foreign countries? You'll get to be back in the United (laughs) States in 26. What is covering the world cup like? And how does it compare to playing in a World Cup? So it's very different than playing, but there is that level of competition. There's the internal competition with yourself. There is the competition with the other talent that is involved. Uh, and there's a competition relative to being at the highest stage. This is the World Cup. It is uh, the greatest groundhog day from a soccer perspective for a, for a former soccer player that you can have. But it is a ritual. It is a routine. And I've done so many of these now and You know, some younger folks will come and ask me and I tell them, stick to ritual, stick to routine, because that's what's going to get you through. I mean, we're having at times four games a day and you're just cranking through this. You got to take care of your body. You got to take care of your mind. Um, and you have to you have to love it. 
I mean, I, I know you've seen this phenomenon in our in our in our industry, right? Uh, there are so many people that use television, use broadcasting, use media as a way station until something better comes along. And I get it. I, I understand that. But I think ultimately uh, that will manifest itself in your performance and uh, you will be cheating yourself and you will be cheating the viewer. And I don't want to cheat anybody. I'm a junkie for what I do. And I want to be surrounded by like-minded people. I want to be surrounded by junkies that love the game, that love the broadcast aspect of the game, that love debating and talking about it, and that bring it day in and day out. And look, we've both been surrounded by some greats in the industry. And when you see them work and you see that what goes on behind the scenes, it is incredible because it's not what you ultimately see on the screen. It's that iceberg type of theory where there's this incredible base and all of this work that goes on. But that's what makes that tip of the iceberg that you do see on screen. That's what makes it good. And if you don't do the work and you don't have that base, then your tip of the iceberg is not going to look as good. It's well said. And I tell everybody out there, and one of the reasons I love doing these conversations is because there's lots of younger people out there who see the success but they don't have any idea all of the work that goes into it. In fact, I think that's really incredibly common in the United States and particularly around the world today. Um, But I always say before I do my radio show, I got three hours of radio every day. I'm spending so much time feeding my brain with information every day so that I have a depth of knowledge to whatever topic I'm discussing because if I haven't done all that research, then whatever I'm saying on the air ultimately you can tell that there's no foundation supporting it and so uh a part of that massive part of that is the passion you have passion still uh there are viral videos of you out there crying when the u.s (laughs) wins soccer matches that uh that 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 we end up winning i imagine sometimes you want to cry when the u.s loses in a match that you feel like they could have won um how do you how do you corral that passion Right. Because I think about this all the time Uh, there, especially when it's one thing when you're playing, you have to learn how to manage it. It's another thing when you're commenting on it, reacting to it. Uh, What is that experience like in your mind? Because that's the way that many fans feel. How do you harness it? What does that do for you as a uh, as an analyst? Yeah, I mean, you you do, I think, have to understand and uh, like you said, harness it. But I also think that. You know, there was a. There's always been a, a debate as to, uh, especially when you're talking about. You know, oftentimes I'm talking about the United States men's national team or the U.S. team, the women's team, men's team, whatever. And do you use we, right? Because I'm an American and this is my team. Um, and you know, there's a debate as to whether you do or not. And we really came down ultimately, and this has happened over years, where absolutely, I, I want to. I want to recognize that there is a connection. I want to re- recognize in the people that I'm watching that I'm hearing that there is an emotion, that there is a history, that they're that they are moved. I want to be moved by the people that I'm watching. And so it's not that you know you should come on and blubber every single time you're on air, but if you feel that, don't be afraid uh, to show it. And yes, there's times where you need to be stoic. And yes, there's times where you need to regulate. Uh, what what is going on in terms of your emotions. And if it impacts the effect for you to be able to articulate things or to be clear or to give information that you need, then that is problematic. But seeing human beings, until they replace us all, Clay, with uh, with robots, 
I'm, I want to see the humanity. I want to see that that person, male or female out there, has a connection and is feeling something visceral and is able to transmit that back to me. And you can see it and you can hear it. And when it is there, oh, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I'll tell you what, there, there, there is a whole generation that is coming up that wants my job, <laughs> you know, and they can pry it from my cold, dead, redheaded hands. I'm going to hold on to it as long as I possibly can. I love what I do. I can certainly get better at what, uh, at what I'm doing, but it is incredibly, uh, I'm incredibly lucky and fortunate to be able to do this. It is not lost on me. I know in this day and age, you got to, you know, admit your privilege or whatever and stuff like that. But so I am incredibly privileged to be able to do what I can do. And hopefully I can do it for many, many more years. So you're going to be calling and analyzing games for decades into the future, I think. I think you're really good at what you do. Christian Pulisic, a big part of whether we have a chance to ever win a World Cup in the next decade or so, I think will be directly tied to his development, many other players as well. Do you think Pulisic's going to be the greatest American soccer player ever? Is that too early of a question to even ask? And how much of his growth as a player is directly tied in, in your mind, to the overall potential success rate for the U.S. going forward? I think his resume may be the greatest that we have ever had. Um, his impact on the game, you know, that, that remains to be seen. I mean, look, he had, a, he had a good World Cup, not a great World Cup, and we expect big things from him, and I think rightfully so. One of the most talented players that we have ever seen. But he's also, you know, he's very shy, and he doesn't necessarily like the spotlight. Um, he's not, you know, a, a, a gregarious, social type of bigger-than-life type of personality. Uh, I think he's going to get better. He's kind of grown out of, well, I know he's injured right now, but there was a time where he was getting injured a whole lot. I hope that he continues to, uh, to grow out of that. And I'm, you, you know, Clay, uh, staying healthy is a skill in sports, and some players have it and some players don't. Christian has yet to show that he is, can consistently stay healthy, but when he is on the field, he can do some magic stuff. But I don't think he's ever going to be the focal point, the LeBron-ish type of player, the Messi type of player for the U.S., in that he's going to be surrounded by players that might take more of the spotlight, but he will have his moments when all is said and done. You said earlier hockey, soccer for you growing up. Hockey and soccer fans are somewhat familiar uh, mirror images almost sometimes of each other because as somebody who did a national sports talk show, runs OutKick, we talk a lot about football. We talk a lot about uh, basketball, certainly, and baseball. And whenever we mention hockey or soccer, people are always like, hey, talk about us more, talk about us more. And then as soon as you start talking about them, they say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. One of the interesting things I think about growing the game of soccer and its fandom is in the United States, uniquely, soccer fans are elitist. They're probably overeducated. <laughs> they probably yeah. have uh, you know, higher income. In the rest of the world, soccer is the sport of the common man. In the United States, soccer is the sport of the elitist fan, I would say. And I understand there's some criticism out there whenever you make this, but this is what I see. You know, the Joe Sixpack is in the crowd uh, at a football game, at a basketball game, at a football game. I don't necessarily know that he is at soccer. How does soccer, interestingly, become more of a common man sport and less of an elitist sport in America when it's the exact opposite basically everywhere else? 
Yeah, so I'm so glad you mentioned this because it, it drives me nuts. Uh, as soccer people, and I'm probably, you know, to your point, the, the, the hockey people are the, kind of the same in that I want as many people into the tent as possible. And I don't want to do anything that is going to create a barrier to entry. I want, I want people to love this game as much as I do. And until they actually see it and, and bring it bring into the tent, it, it, it's not going to happen. And so I want to be there welcoming people in. And, yes, to your point, we as soccer people can be incredibly elitist, incredibly snobby, and it can be a deterrent to people uh, coming, coming into the game going forward. We can also be incredibly insecure, and I think that just comes from not being king and having to fight and crawl and scrape for absolutely every little inch of, you know, whether it's uh, media coverage or attention or ultimately what it comes down to is credibility. But whether it's on OutKick or anything else, you're a business. You are going to give the people what they want until the data tells you that they want something different. And it doesn't mean that you don't try different things. It doesn't mean that you don't recognize that your viewership and your readers have a palette out there that has expanded. But ultimately, you want to make sure you get clicks. You want to make sure that you have people that are subscribing. You want to make sure that you're giving them what they want. And so we, we cannot be a charity. We have to show that this is a sport on the field that is worthy of your time and off the field is worthy of your business. And to the extent that we, you know, put our, put our noses in the air or do things in the way that we act or the things that we say that drive people away, that is the worst possible thing that we can do. I don't want to be uh, exclusionary. I want to be as inviting as possible as a sport for everybody in America, and I sure as hell don't want people to feel intimidated or scared about the vernacular that we use or the, you know, the... Uh, the supporters groups and the culture that we have and the way that we talk about the game or dress or, or look at ourselves, that, that cannot be a hindrance. And too often, to your point, it is. Um, you have traveled all over the world. I want to give you an opportunity to give some, uh, give some stories and or tell people where you think they should go based on your experience. But also, have you ever felt endangered at all while you've been covering the World Cup all over the world, like I'm sure you found yourself in some interesting alleys at different points. Have you ever felt physically in danger? <laughs> so a lot of times I have security with me, uh, but you know over the years, if, you know as a player, you know especially going into Central America, and keep in mind that there's you know there's this whole uh, you know uh, social type of aspect to it and cult- cultural and political type of aspect to be to be honest with you because. Even though soccer isn't king in the U.S., we still represent, you know, for many countries, the, you know, the big bad U.S. and all of the baggage that you know that we bring. And so when we go down and play some of these countries, it may be their only moments when they get to beat up on America, when they get to say that they are better than America at something. And don't underestimate the power of that. And so we go down into these cauldrons to play. And so in the stadium, there's security everywhere and there's moats and there's fences, and there's guard dogs, and there's machine guns, and all this kind of stuff uh, to protect us as Americans from the moment that we land to the moment uh, that, we, that we leave. Now, I've been in situations, whether it was as a player, as a broadcaster, at different times in different countries where stuff has happened, and you know, people have you know, threatened me and do all that, but you know, some of that comes with the territory. And yeah, at the moment, it's, it's, it's not great, but like I said, I, I don't want to 
I don't want to deny myself the opportunity to have these great experiences, to see different places, to, to, to understand and to meet different people and to experience different cultures simply because, you know, there's the possibility of something happening. But, yeah, I mean. Didn't you get a gun good. pulled on you in Russia? That's what I was trying to key, to key yeah. you up for. Is that public? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, you know, that's scary. It's not fun. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously they, they didn't like the way I talked about the game or something. I don't know what the hell they were uh, angry about. But, you know, it's Russia, too. So we were in <laughs> Moscow for the World Cup. And uh, you, you've never seen our security go into action faster when, the, when, that, when that happened. And luckily, nothing ultimately uh, did happen of it, uh, happen and become of it. And I'm, I'm still here to tell the tale. Um. If you could go anywhere in the world, you've gotten to travel all over the place to play soccer. Where is your favorite place that you have been, both potentially to play soccer in terms of a stadium that you've gotten to play in, but also just a city or a country where you've thought, man, I would love to be able to spend more time here. This place is exquisite. Yeah, I mean, so I, I know you recently visited uh, Italy, and so I played there many years ago. And, uh, you know, the, the culture just in general is incredible, the food and the travel and these, you know, the incredible history. And I know you're a big history buff. Uh, that's wonderful. But then you add this, this incredible culture and history when it comes to the game, you know, these stadiums that they have, whether it's San Siro Stadium in, uh, in Milan, you know, these, these types of legendary cathedrals that we have. You know, I played in the old Wembley Stadium, and, you know, that's the stadium that where England played and where, uh, you know, Freddie Mercury played and all these different places, and all these different, you know, incredible moments uh, through history. And so the, being able to use soccer to see some of, these pl- some of these places, but seeing a country and culture through the eyes of soccer, I think can be incredibly illuminating because soccer is so important in many of these countries that it informs everything. It informs, you know, politics and social, uh, you know, uh, pleasantries. And uh, obviously, you know, it's incredibly tribal from uh, wherever you are. And it, it infiltrates and, like I said, informs almost everything that happens on a day-to-day basis. And it's really amazing to see a country because, and I'm not saying it's better or worse, I'm just saying it's very different in the way that we look at our sports. And a lot of people will try to say, well, that means it's more passionate. And we have more, uh, you know, we don't have as passionate uh, sports fans here in the U.S. That's a bunch of BS. Okay, I think that we are actually I think we understand much more about what sports is and what it isn't. And certainly there are times where people go you know, over the line. And I think, you know, you're, you are a huge you know, college football fan, that type of passion. I'll put that up against uh, soccer fans around the world. And I, I, I love, though, being able to see a country, a culture, a city, an area, relative to their sports and sometimes you can find out a lot about a place and find out a lot about a people relative to their sports all right last question for you and we appreciate all the time it's been wins and losses alexi lawless i'm clay travis a lot of people out there who listen to these interviews are young right uh and or their dads or granddads give it to young people and say hey here's how you can learn and continue to evolve if you were talking to a young soccer player today uh 14 year old alexi lawless playing somewhere in the country today and he not only wants to play for his national team but he also is interested potentially in a career in media sports media in general what would you tell that young person could be a boy or girl out there that they should be working on at 14 15 years old as they age and as they grow and hey maybe there's 22 year old college version of you out there who's listening right now too what do you wish you had known in terms of your career path 
Uh, okay, so when it comes to broadcasting, and I, I get a lot of young, uh, you know, men and women that, that come up and want to talk about it. You know, so first off, and you know this phenomenon, uh, it's not a phenomenon, it's just the reality of the opportunities that we get as ex-players, okay? The door will open to you more so than others because you played, all right? It will not stay open forever, and you, you better be ready when it does open. And so, first off, if you are already playing, if you're a, you know, a professional and you're thinking about a career in broadcast, if you can recognize a moment to jump off. You know, I was 32 years old when I stopped playing, which is still relatively young, but I got given an opportunity, and so a jumping-off point came, and I was smart enough in that moment to recognize that while I could have continued playing, this was an opportunity to go and do something that possibly could last, obviously, well beyond my career, but could become a career. And you've got to have the wherewithal to recognize, because your career, I guarantee you, will never end in the way that you want. Uh, when it comes to specifics on broadcasting, I think you and I both know that your ability to edit either beforehand or in real time is crucial, especially when you work in television and you've got somebody in your ear telling you, you've got 13 seconds and we've got to get off air. And you've got to be able to say something that is interesting, that is informative, to make, it, make sure that you say it in an entertaining way so that people aren't cha uh, changing the channel. And that comes with reps. That comes with the ability to do some of it. Some of it's innate. I mean, you know as well as I do, there's plenty of people that we say, oh, that person will be great on television. And it's different when you're answering questions to a reporter after a game or something like that, or obviously if you're just sitting on your couch. So that all Alexi, is, you know, sorry, that sorry to cut you off here, but the green room. There are dudes yeah. that I have sat in the green room <laughs> with literally 100 yards at most from the actual studio, and I've been like, this guy is going to kill it on television. And the 100-yard yep. walk into the studio, they get deer in headlights. They are a 15th or 20th as engaging as they were in the green room. There's a big difference when those lights come on. It's brutal. It is brutal. But that red light, I, I live for it. I can't wait. People ask me, do you get nervous? Hell yeah. And if I'm not nervous, I'm not ready. I love that feeling. And now I've learned to harness that nervous energy and, and direct it into, you know, down the barrel. If I'm talking down the barrel, if I'm looking over at Rob Stone, I love that. It jacks me up. I will never be able to replicate playing. I've come to that realization over the years. And you better figure that out quickly. But I've found something that jacks me up as much. And in many ways, it rewards me and fulfills me even more so than anything I did on the field. The U.S. wins the World Cup in 2026. You get to do talk about it on television. You finish television. First thing you want to do when you leave the television set to celebrate is what? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I will be in tears. I will be an, an older gentleman who will be thinking about all of the history and everything that has come before. I, I think, you know, honestly... I will be wanting to celebrate it with people that have been around. And this is, you know, this is a labor of love. It's still a labor. It's gotten easier over the years, but it's still pushing that boulder up. And there are so many men and women on and off the field that have worked so long to be able to get to that point. And so I would, I would look around and give big hugs to the people that will never, ever get the credit. You will never know their name that have worked to enable us to be in that moment. Now, it's not, it doesn't change everything overnight but it's a hell of an ejection to have. He is Alexi Lawless. How can people find you? What would people, what'd you tell people who enjoyed this conversation who want more? 
Uh, listen, you can come yell at me on Twitter at Alexi Lawless uh, or Instagram or anything out there. I have my State of the Union podcast on Fox. And then, if look, if somebody's kicking a ball out there, men's, women's, co-ed naked, I am there talking about it on Fox. <laughs> that is outstanding. I am Clay Travis. He is Alexi Lawless. This has been Wins and Losses. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.